Do you have someone in mind who you would like to see on the Relate Podcast? Head on over to Instagram at Relate Podcast and send me a message or leave me a comment. Let me know who you would like to see on the show. Also, if you'd like me to talk about a specific topic, send me a comment or message and let me know what you'd like me to talk about. That's at Relate Podcast on Instagram. This is episode 124 of the Relate podcast on data privacy and inclusive housing with Dan Wu. We are spending more and more time in the online world, looking through our screens and increasingly disconnected with those around us. But studies have proven that it's real life meaningful relationships that bring us the most joy and happiness. It's all about human connection and conversing with people from a variety of backgrounds. Worlds change when eyes meet. So let's sit down and relate. I am your host, Patrick McAndrew, and welcome to another episode of Relate. This is a great episode for you all, especially for those of you who are wondering, how does technology work in my life? How does this thing that I now spend so much time on because of the COVID situation, how does this impact my life? And in turn, how am I impacting it? What am I contributing to the technological space? What am I contributing to the internet? If you are wondering these questions or have ever thought about these questions, this is the episode for you because we are talking with an amazing guest. His name is Dan Wu, and he is a privacy counsel and legal engineer at Immuta, an automated data governance platform for analytics. He's an advocate for data ethics, inclusive urban innovation, and diversity, and has written for TechCrunch, Harvard Business Review, and Fast Company. And he's also helped Fortune 500 companies, governments, and startups with ethical and agile data strategies. And some of these things that we discussed include how data privacy is important for a social reason, why data protection must be implemented into the design of technology, and then also how do we build housing that fulfills people's basic needs using technology. We unpack a lot in this episode. If you know someone who you think this episode may resonate with, please send it their way. Head on over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review, let me know your thoughts, or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. So with all of that said, let me please introduce today's guest of Relate, Dan Wu. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the Relate podcast today. I'm very excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. You, you're doing some very incredible and fascinating work, specifically in the, the data field, technology, r- really pushing for a wide variety of very important, what, how, how I kind of see them as movements in the data privacy and technology space, really things that we seriously need to consider as we're developing all different kind of technologies and also important things to keep in mind like privacy, like ethics. 
And so I'm very excited to have you on the show because so much of what we talk about in this Relate podcast is not only our relationship to ourselves and to other people, but also our relationship to technology, just because as it's continuing to advance, uh, as society continues to progress, technology, and especially now in the COVID days, is having more and more of an influence in, in how we live our lives. So thank you so much for being here. Absolutely. And thank you for, you know, tackling these really important issues and bringing together people to talk about them. I think that's super, super important in all of this. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm trying to do my part for sure. <laughs> uh, so I'm wondering, uh, just for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, I'm wondering if you could just start off by sharing a little bit about yourself and what led you onto this path that you're pursuing today. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, Full disclosure, my path is a little confused and confusing, um, but I think a lot of that um, in hindsight has been because I've really been trying to integrate my various interests. Um, I have an interest in law and technology, but I also have an interest in how we can create more inclusive cities. Um, I was in school for um, a while. Um, I did a JD and PhD at Harvard. My PhD was at the Kennedy and Sociology, studying urban inequality and affordable housing innovation. Um, pursued the law degree, and ironically, um, in law school, I got very interested in technology and innovation. It's not a common place to get interested in that, but I started getting very into startups and thinking about that as a path towards uh, social impact, not just policy uh, creation. Um, eventually, I, I, you know, I participated in things like the Harvard Innovation Lab, got really interested in startups. And then um, after that, I decided to work at a law firm. So I decided to uh, be an outside counsel to startups in Silicon Valley, did that for about a year, learned a lot about the operational problems that startups go through and realized that my itch was actually to um, be a part of a startup. So I by, you know, by fortune chance, I was able to join as a quote unquote legal engineer. And I can go into that in the future and future part of this conversation and privacy council at Amuda, which is a series C data ethics startup. Essentially what we do is we help companies share data safely for the purposes of artificial intelligence and analytics. This ended up being a fantastic role for me because as I mentioned, interested in startups and products, but also sort of law and ethics, this was a way for me to combine that. It's a legal engineer, essentially this role um, of someone who is legally trained and informed about regulations, but also works really closely with the product development team to actually advocate for how, for people at companies that are working on protecting data better so that we can have our software protect data by default more easily. Um, outside of that, just very been very interested in uh, inclusive cities. I've been working on various research projects um, with professors such as uh, Sheila Foster at Georgetown Law School, um, looking at things like community land trusts and with uh, folks like Greg Lindsay at New Cities, where we've been thinking a lot about how trust and democracy and empowerment are, should be a huge part of smart cities. Wow. And and when you say inclusive cities or in inclusive housing, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So um, my definition, and this is going to be different based on who you're talking to, is how we can build a city 
that meets people's basic needs, regardless of their circumstances. Um, whether it's by using law and technology or other finance and other resources. But the critical aspect is how do we improve access to these basic needs, such as housing and transportation, quality education. Um, I think that technology and innovation is a means to an end. Um, ultimately, the larger goal is how we can create uh, these important, you know, these quality, decent, basic conditions. And uh, technology is, that, is a tool to better understand the problems and barriers that make that a reality. So um, for me, inclusivity is about um, access to those basic needs um, so that individuals um, can focus on things that are really important as well. Um, you know, building relationships, um, being a part of community, being able to create and invent. Um, it's a shame that so much of our society is essentially living paycheck to paycheck to to meet these basic needs. So the goal is to build like a more inclusive future in that regard. And how have you found in this work that, like I guess through through the research you've been doing and just this, this, the various studying you've been doing about the possibility of inclusive housing cities, has the research that you found been pretty fascinating? Like, does it look like something that can be possible if implemented <laughs> the right implemented the right way? I mean, I'm extremely biased. I think it's definitely possible. Um, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to make an improvement. Um, the construction piece, which is, you know, granted it's only one aspect of the larger inclusive housing space is one of the most, um, it's one of the least innovated industries. Um, it's only above farming and agriculture. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to use technology, to use innovation, to drive down the cost of building things. Outside of that, um, there's an, a huge opportunity for us to think about new types of governance structures. And as a lawyer, like thinking about who gets to make decisions, who, who gets to um, be a part of controlling or, you know, deciding um, how things are being how things are being decided upon and sold and transferred. And so um, there are interesting governance models like community land trusts that are trying to make that a reality. Um, I think that has a huge, that has lots of potential. And again, not a huge space uh, where technology and innovation has yet been applied. Um, although there's been a lot of fascinating models out there. And then lastly, policy innovation. Um, up to this point, most many cities across the nation have have just assumed things like exclusionary zoning, uh, which is this idea that um, houses have to be a minimum size or they have to have two car garages or they have to be um, X, Y, Z that ultimately end up in increasing costs of, the, of that critical basic need. And when you increase the cost of it, it ultimately excludes um, individuals who may not have that means. And so I think there's some interesting policy innovations underway challenging this taken for granted notion in places like Minneapolis. There's been some movement in, in uh, Massachusetts, for instance, to allow for things like the creation of duplexes or triplexes or uh, uh, micro units and otherwise very expensive, high opportunity suburbs. And so I, I, guess, I guess my point is, is that there's so much opportunity to improve. Um, housing just generally is an area where there hasn't been as much innovation or movement. And I think 
there are some incredible leaders currently working on uh, changing that. I think you bring up a lot of great points because even just with the the little amount of experience I have with connecting with people in the technology space, a lot of us are talking about you know our relationship to technology as individuals, sometimes our relationship to technology as as companies and organizations. But I think you bring up a really good point as to how can technology improve the way that housing is run or housing's developed. I think you're right. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about this, but it's work that is super critically important as we're moving forward as a society. I'm glad you agree. I 100% agree. <laughs> housing, housing is, in my opinion, one of those uh, keystone areas where if you can improve it, it improves so many different aspects of someone's life. Um, housing is a critical determinant of uh, where, where one is born and grows up is a critical determinant of your future life chances. That's been really well documented and researched um, by social scientists. And housing is something that is critical to uh, your health even um, or to your social opportunities. So I think the better we can increase uh, the supply and uh, the design of housing, uh, especially so that it meets like health health outcomes, socioeconomic out- outcomes, uh, democratic outcomes. I think I think we can make a we can make a pretty big impact in terms of the overall well being of people in our society. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and I'm I'm so glad that that you're really spearheading in a lot of ways spearheading this this movement. And I guess though, kind of taking a couple steps back into your work with. Uh, at, you know, working as privacy counsel as well, and all the work that you've done with data privacy, tech ethics, they say that that data is the new oil. And for those of our listeners out there, they, they might not quite understand this, that I think a lot of people are still trying to wrap their heads around, okay, what is data exactly? And so, so with all of that said, can you explain I, I guess in a broad sense, what data is, and then why is it that data is the new oil? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great question. Um, one of the big reasons, so da- data essentially could be almost anything. It's just um, an, an abstraction of things um, about you that people can use and analyze and share with others, um, and so. And that, that also often involves personal data, non-personal data, um, and privacy is often concerned with the personal data, um, but it could expand beyond that. Um, but before getting into too many details around that, uh, data has been seen as, re- has been compared to oil because it's been seen as the fuel for the new economy. Um, oil, um, especially large quantities and cheaply produced oil was sort of the driver of what we call like the industrial revolution, uh, machine, machinery, uh, things of that nature, um, the production, things like producing cars and mass production. Um, of course, that's not the main driver, but the, 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 the creation of that cheap resource um, was, was, very, was very important to that. Um, people are comparing data to oil because data similarly for the new economy, for um, innovations such as artificial intelligence and analytics and um, other types of things that are 
um, that people think are really critical to driving this economy forward. And is data is sort of the foundation or bedrock of that. Um, I, I will mention, however, that there are some important distinctions between data and oil. Um, data um, can be reused. And so um, data, it's not like you just use data and it disappears like oil and evaporates. Um, but similarly, data like oil, if used inappropriately, can cause big externalities. Like oil, for instance, um, has been the the burning of oil and fossil fuels has been a major driver of climate change, which is, as many people know, is a pretty big existential risk for a civilization. Um, that's when it's used inappropriately, and that's why people are actually trying to derive alternative energy sources. Similarly, data. And again, this goes into privacy and ethics. If used inappropriately and managed inappropriately, it can cause some pretty big existential risks for society as well. Um, power dynamics between big technology companies that have access to this data, maybe even state governments um, that they want to use this data to commit human rights atrocities or to uh, you know better control their citizenry. It has opportunity to create um, major downstream effects that harm people. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of similarities, but there are some distinctions as well. Um, and it's really important for us when we're using these analogies to also challenge and critique um, that like, sort of the, the assumptions behind them. So for instance, while data and oil do have a lot of similarities, I prefer to conceptualize data as a renewable resource. Um, how can we use circular economy principles and sustainability principles to envision how we govern data and use data um, so that it reduces, so that we're using it to reduce negative effects on people, whether that's privacy risk or power, power dynamics, or to even share it in a way that uplifts more people. Um, I, think, I think using a different framework can also help us think about how we use that resource in a, in a, in a better, in a way that helps us better relate to each other as a, as a community, as a human community. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely love that. I, I think you're, you're right in that data, I think, is becoming this more prevalent part of our life. And I think you make a really good point about it being renewable as well, that, that really there's <laughs> so much data to go around. Even as an individual, you have I, I don't know how much data that can be used, I guess, for you or, or for or against you. And that really brings me to my next question with regards to data privacy. Why is data privacy so important and why should ethics be built into technology? We're seeing this conversation very prevalently, especially in the big tech companies right now where we're discussing, okay, why does there need to be privacy regulations and, and ethics and, and have a, a moral philosophy behind how technology is made? Why are these things so important? I, I'm curious for you to explain this just for our listeners out there who might not really think about these things too much. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's a fantastic question. I think um, just even the, the societal conversation in the last five years has changed significantly where most people didn't understand or didn't really think that privacy was that important. Um, but I think some significant things happened, for instance, Cambridge Analytica and other sort of privacy scandals that 
really exploded um, and pushed the importance of these topics to the spotlight. Um, I think for starters, there's sort of the social argument, which is that things like privacy and ethics, and just to, just to compare the two really quickly, um, people often make the difference uh, distinction between compliance and ethics. And I think privacy is often seen as sort of a compliance uh, regime where it's about um, reducing, often it's, it's conceived as reducing re-identification risk so that if you re-identify a person, um, it, that, that, that understanding can't be used for harm. Um, ethics often is conceived as something that goes beyond what the law says. Uh, something that if you looked back 50, 100 years um, based on a sense of what is right, uh, what is what is going to cause trust, um, ethics is often put into that category. Ultimately, uh, to answer your larger question, uh, these things are important for, for a lot of reasons, but one is to reduce harm to people. Um, as you can imagine, re-identifying someone's health information, especially something that's sensitive that could be used in a way that discriminates against them, that potentially puts them even in physical harm uh, because maybe they're part of a community that um, is biased or discriminates against that, that thing, that trait, uh, it's important to keep that private. Um, on the on a even broader end, again, uh, sort of describing privacy, uh, putting limitations around the use of that data, especially if it's something that can be put into an algorithm that harms someone. So for instance, there was a really great article about um, bias in the criminal justice system and thinking about how um, these algorithms that were sentencing people in jail uh, tended to uh, discriminate against African Americans and give them higher um, levels of sentencing uh, despite having similar crime level, uh, similar levels of crime. Um, and so there's there's a whole range of why that's important, but I think a huge part of it is about protecting uh, against harm. Um, I think on the other side, um, these things are important because you could potentially solidify trust with uh, your your users or your customers or your stakeholders. Um, one example of this is uh, sort of the there was an interesting case with Apple where. Uh, there was concern that this algorithm that they're using for their new credit card was uh, not fairly treating uh, women. Um, and even if, you know, ultimately there was an investigation being raised. Um, but I think what was really critical was that even if it wasn't true, um, and it's very likely that they complied with um, various regulations to prevent the possibility of that, of um, sort of, doing something illegal around that, there was at least that perception um, that there was uh, discrimination or bias and that exploded on Twitter. Um, I think it was the former founder of Ruby on Rails, which is like a major programming language, uh, retweeted this really angrily um, saying that, you know, his wife, despite similar uh, levels of assets, um, had, a, had a credit limit that was 30 times less than him. And so that led to major, major backlash um, and it, he also posted about his inability to kind of understand how the algorithm was making decisions, talking to customer service reps, not being able to object to um, what happened. Um, eventually, you know, potentially as a result of the fallout, he did get his way and that was resolved. Um, but that 
pose ethical questions. Potentially what Apple did was legal. They worked with, um, I believe it was Goldman Sachs, um, who likely knows financial regulations in and out. Um, yet the, tr the public did not receive their new product, financial product, in the way that they wanted to, potentially leading to one of its worst product launches um, in the last decade. And so uh, things like this, ethics is sort of more into that realm. You might be doing something legal, but do what people uh, think what you're doing is right. Um, and how do you, what can, and also goes into like, what can you do to kind of reduce the chances of people believing you're doing the wrong thing? I actually wrote an article uh, with someone at um, in O'Reilly, which is a data science publication focused on um, how people can start thinking about incorporating data ethics and technology ethics into their to their product launches. So that's something you can look up if you want to uh, get more into ethics. Oh yeah, yeah, that would be great. And and maybe too with our our listeners, maybe you could just share that link with me, and I could uh, share it yeah. in the show notes with our listeners because I think this stuff is so important. I think that a lot of times the average internet user, or I guess someone who it doesn't work in tech, but obviously, you know, everyone uses the internet. They, they don't really think about these things. And, and I, I know that I, I'm guilty of that sometimes as well, that I kind of take the user-friendly, easy access of the whole internet for granted sometimes without really stopping to think about and be like, Oh, okay. This is uh, over time a collection of of data that could be used for better or for worse. And yeah, yeah. I, I I guess to kind of go off of that, what do you think people misunderstand the most when it comes to data and and data privacy, and then as well as ethics too? Yeah, no, that's that's a really great question. Um, maybe I could just kind of build off and respond to what you had just said. I think that potentially people might think of privacy as a one-time thing, like it's about the obscuring of data, or it's about like this, like a process, um, like a specific app, like method that you put on data to make it harder to re-identify re people. Um, I think, in, at least in my definition, um, privacy and ethics is about um, design. It's about um, design and incentives. Um, it's unfortunate when people, um, and we've all been there, we, we take the easy option. We may sign up for X service because we think it's super convenient, uh, but that service might be doing something that ultimately harms us in the long run because, you know, frankly, we have less information often than organizations that have and amass the data. Um, that's why it's really important to make privacy by design or it's called data protection by design so that um, the easy, even something that's easy to do for the consumer is done in a way that ultimately respects their privacy rights. And that's sort of the framework, uh, the, the European framework of looking at things um, to, to, to move it towards um, that I think is really important. I think another thing that's really critical as well is incentives. Um, if organizations are incentivized and, you know, frankly, make revenue off of collecting massive amounts of data in sort of an uncontrolled fashion, unfocused fashion, and potentially reselling that, uh, not exactly caring about privacy rights, uh, especially because if there is a regulatory gap, um, as may be the case in much of the US, um, it's going to be hard for organizations to do the right thing. So I think it's, I think it's also important to think about these structural factors, like how is the product being designed or service being designed and 
what are the business's incentives? Um, and if for organizations that want to do better, uh, they need to think about both. How does privacy and ethics and data protection um, part of you know the revenue generation? How can it assist in that, not be a conflict against it? Because there's always the uh, or organizational leaders are always going to be butting heads as a result. Um, how, if once that's decided, ideally, how is that embedded by design into the product or service so that the easy thing to do for the consumer is something that is in their interest? And so um, I would say that the misunderstanding here is that privacy is just about a method applied to data, uh, whether it's like obscuring the data or, you know, hashing or whatever. Um, in my view, it's about um, it's an organizational strategy question and product design question. Huh, man, Dan, you've given us so many great things to think about. I tell you, my mind's kind of like, just, it's, it's like always important to keep this, maybe not right in, in front of our, our minds at all times, but in the back of our minds to really just be able to assess, okay, what is our behavior online? What is our interaction with, with others online as well and our online activity? So uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show and, and taking the time. And I also just really appreciate the work that you're doing. You're really focusing and honing in on an, a very important topic when it comes not only to data privacy, but also what you're talking about with inclusive housing and, and creative inclusive cities and really figuring out ways in which we can use technology to truly enhance our lives and reap the benefits of technology while also keeping under control the potential negatives as well. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss some of these issues with you. Yeah. Where can our listeners find out more information about you and your work? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. I I would say the easiest thing to do is to find me on LinkedIn. Um, so if you just type in Dan Wu LinkedIn. Um, um, I also have a website that I need to update, <laughs> um, but you can, I, you can get to that website. I'll, actually, I'll just email you and you can put that in the show notes, but essentially... It's uh, it's it's tiny.cc slash Dan Wu. Um, and that's a way that you can find me as well. Um, but I would say the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, we'll make sure to include the links to those in our show notes. So listeners out there, just scroll down in the show notes. I highly recommend clicking those links for Dan in this episode. <laughs> it, you know, a lot of, lot of great value in it. So Dan, I have one last question for you before we head on out. Of course. What's up? How can we as a society better relate to one another? I, I absolutely love this question. Um, I, I would actually love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, but I, but I, I think that I think the biggest thing for me is uh, to think about how we can challenge our biases around people that we're unfamiliar with or that we might have negative stereotypes with, and then to also um, do things that improve perspective taking and understand them, understand those people in a different way. Um, I, I, can I can kind of analogize to one thing uh, that I've experienced with. I, um, I'm privacy counsel and legal engineer, and it's really, it's highly unusual actually for lawyers to uh, be so embedded in the product development process. Uh, we're essentially 
like quasi or product managers. And the reason, um, the reason I bring that up is that oftentimes within companies, lawyers are seen as people that um, block product development processes. Um, often, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're criticized as or, uh, individuals that say no a lot. Um, I think what's been really important in sort of this re-envisioning has been to uh, build that trust upfront with really different stakeholders um, from data scientists and product developers, be a part of that process, go to their meetings, understand them as people. Um, for instance, um, understanding their like p- potential interests and hobbies um, outside of just simply uh, what their what their title is. Um, and then that'll also help start to address some of the biases that you might have around people or professionals that you may not understand. Um, so I think, and then also, uh, lastly, sort of this idea of perspective taking as well, uh, so that you can better understand um, people's interests and motivations and goals. So I, I think I think one of the big things, and this is obviously a very micro level um, perspective, is essentially relating to people in a different way such that it's about challenging your biases and uh, breaking apart how you understand that other person uh, simply beyond a title or whatever is superficial in front of them and using that as a way to connect with them. Yes, Uh, I would absolutely agree with you on that. I think so much of relating to one another is putting our differences aside and really finding ways in which Yes, we as a human species have so much more in common than we realize. And so much of that was embedded in what you had just said. So I absolutely agree. What a great way to end the episode. <laughs> so uh, so, so Dan, <laughs> thank you. Dan, thank you so much again. Really appreciate being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Relate. You can let me know your thoughts on this episode by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a review. Or if you have the Anchor app, feel free to call in and leave a voicemail. I would love to hear from you. You can support this podcast by clicking the link in the show notes. Thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.